This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. Our goal and mission at Parent Footprint is to create a loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we firmly believe that the key to raising happy, healthy, engaged, and aware kids is for us parents to do the same, to focus on our own happiness, health, engagement, and awareness in our own lives. When we can do this... We can create our own awareness for the foundation of a successful parenting experience. With this vision, we can act in the way that's commensurate with our goals for our kids now and raising healthy adults in the future. Today's show is completely in line with this goal and mission of Parent Footprint. The name of today's show, the topic, is The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. And I am very excited to have back on the show an esteemed colleague, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. And Tina has been on the show before, and it is one of our most listened to and downloaded shows. Today, Tina is going to be talking about her new book, The Yes Brain. Tina is also the co-author with Dr. Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, two great books. She's the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, an interdisciplinary clinical team in Pasadena, California. Dr. Tina is a licensed clinical social worker providing pediatric and adolescent psychotherapy and parenting consultations. Dr. Tina earned her PhD from the University of Southern California, and she lives in Los Angeles with her husband and three children. Tina, welcome back to the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I love what you said there. It is so important, and I'm so happy to be talking with you about this super important topic about being intentional as parents, about what we do and the ways that we communicate with our kids. Which is exactly why I talk about your books and your work all the time uh, in my (laughs) daily work and have them on the bookshelf right here. And, you know, so a lot of people listening do know of you and your previous books. And so tell us how this newest book evolved um, from your work and the last uh, two bestsellers that you co-authored. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, the first book, The Whole Brain Child, which is the one we're most known for, is a book really about how the kinds of experiences we provide kids can help do what we talk about and what's based in the science about integrating our kids' brains. And when the brain or any kind of system is integrated, we become more flexible, adaptive, coherent, meaning we do what makes sense and we're resilient. 
energized and stable. And so really the whole brain child is about how we can help our children become more flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. And then the second book, No Drama Discipline, is about how do we do that? How do we build integration and build relationship with our kids in the midst of discipline? And how discipline itself, um, the moments when our kids are struggling, are often the best opportunities to help them learn. And really going back to the original meaning of the word discipline, which is to disciple or to teach our children and to build skills for them and with them and, um, and help them do that. And so, you know, what Dan and I do, we have this really fun, Dan Siegel, my co-author, um, we have this really fun thing where every summer we get together with, uh, we go on like a doubles date, him and his wife and my husband and I are, the four of us are such a great team. And so we sit and we sort of have this long dinner with this idea of like, what's next and what are we, what are we wrestling with and what's on our minds and what are we seeing clinically and sort of what is the need in the world as we go out and talk with people. And so... This latest book, The Yes Brain, came from a conversation where Dan and I were talking about how we know so many, we were sort of talking about how now adolescents are, we're seeing rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality that are higher than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And we also are seeing these young adults who, by all marks of what we typically think of as success, um, they have achieved. You know, they've checked all the boxes of getting the best test scores and the best GPAs and gone to the best colleges. And yet... They don't seem to have an inner compass, and many of them are feeling really sort of lost. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we started really thinking about this idea of redefining success and what it, what it looks like when we have built integration in kids' brains and when we've disciplined them in ways that allow them to build skills and to become more resilient so that we end up disciplining them less because they've built these skills and they can go out into the world to be self-disciplined human beings – this is what led us to write the yes brain because we wanted to really think about what do we really mean when we say success about raising an adult, you know, raising a child to be a successful adult. Right. And so we talk about these sort of four pillars that you and I'm sure we'll talk about that really sort of exemplify what it means to have an integrated brain that allows us to be successful in our world, our work and in our relationships. You know, and how many of us parents think about when we're in that tough moment with our kids that there's a meltdown or there is an argument or um, they're doing something to push the limits? And how hard is it for us to step back and say, what do I need to do now to help integrate Ugh. my child's brain so they can have a <laughs> successful, resilient future? But that's what we're supposed right. to be doing, right? Yeah, but that's not that's that's not going to happen. I mean, I yeah. I know from myself, you know, and I tell lots of stories about my own, you know, challenges and struggles as a parent. And, you know, like I remember telling a story recently about when my son was, you know, in middle school, he came to me on a Sunday night at like 6 p.m. and said, hey, mom, can you take me to Michael's craft store? And the only reason my son as an eighth grader would want to go to craft to a craft store at six o'clock on a Sunday night is because he has a project due the next morning, you know, <laughs> and it was a 3D model of a cell due the very next morning. And in that moment, I didn't think like, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity for me to become aware of the skills he need to build, needs to build and to be intentional about doing that. No, I was like saying cuss words in my head and, and I was really mm -hmm. frustrated with him. And I was like, why did you wait until the last minute? And this is so irresponsible. And I lectured him about stuff he already knew. And it wasn't until a day or two later that I went, oh, he told me something. He, he completely communicated to me that he doesn't yet have skill building to do the executive function skills to be planning, a, you know, ahead right. and be considerate of my time and collection of materials and all that. 
um, or to delay gratification to do his project instead of playing football with his buddies all weekend. So <laughs> then that could shift me then after the moment where I go, okay, now I know my job as a, his disciplinarian, his skill builder and teacher is to start intentionally building those skills. So now I need to change something, which means every weekend before he goes and plays with his buddies, we look at what he has coming up and I ask him, okay, what is it you need to do? And I ask a lot of questions until those skills are hardwired and there's some automaticity there. Thank you for the human element there, um, because <laughs> what I really like about what you said and for everyone to hear is, you know, we're still going to be human responders in the moment. We want to work really hard, as you've talked about on, on our um, last conversation about how important it is for us to, before we can help regulate our kids, we have to be regulated ourselves. Right. Um, but we're not always going to be. And it, huh. we have a second chance and a third chance. We can come back around and and be intentional about this uh integrated brain. Absolutely. So, and there are the four things that, of course, these four pillars that we're going to talk about today, um, the balanced brain, the resilient brain, the insightful brain, and the empathic brain. All these are the yes brains. Um, That's right. Now, I'm thinking that there is some rhyme and reason to the ordering that of talking <laughs> about this, of balanced, resilient, insightful, and em empathic. Yes, there absolutely is um, a decision there. And it's also really helpful. And if you know our other work, you know that Dan and I like acronyms a lot. And this this is like cheese, right? The brie. Uh, so that's helpful mm -hmm. to remember. Um, but it absolutely is an order. And that is that unless we have balance and, and other words people might use when it comes to balance would be self-regulation, which I don't really I have. I really struggle with that word self-regulation because sometimes we self-regulate and sometimes we need to co-regulate with someone else. Um, Dan has a really beautiful way of talking about inner regulation and interregulation. You we sort of have both and need both at different times. But unless we are balanced or what we call in the book in the green zone where our nervous system feels safe and uh, that we are integrated enough that we really can make decisions and pause before action and access our prefrontal cortex, that when we're in the green, we have to be in the green zone. We have to be balanced before we can ever get to resilience, insight, and empathy. When you are not in the green zone, when you are not balanced, you cannot see yourself. You don't care about other people. You can't bounce back from adversity. You just can't even get to the others. So balance is really, and, and we really should talk about this yes brain and no brain state and how they, they look different as it relates to balance. But unless we are in this, ba so balance is really about, you know, being in the green zone and, and resilience is about being able to go back to the green zone when we get out. And it's also about having a really wide green zone so that it doesn't take as much to ruffle our feathers or throw us into these reactive states. Mm hmm. So... I'm thinking about a, a meltdown that I was um, privy to fairly recently. Um, <laughs> what, what, how do we do that? And does that do, with our kids and does it change for the age of our child? It, well, it absolutely does. And it changes, you know, there's not really one way with, I mean, any of you who have been around more than, you know, one set of siblings, you know, I know what works for one of my kids doesn't work for the others. And I know mm -hmm. what might work for my one kid in one moment might be different even the next week. Um, so it's really sort of about attuning to our kids. But before I answer that, I, that of how we get kids back into balance, because I have a, I have really specific strategies around that. Let's talk first about what I mean by a yes brain and a no brain. Okay. Um, a yes brain 
when I, when we talk about the yes brain, we are not talking about telling our kids yes. We're not, this is not a permissive parenting manual. You know, this isn't like just tell your kids yes all the time. Um, and some people have misinterpreted that, that, you know, when we say um, no to our kids, that it, it sends them into a reactive state. That's not necessarily the case. So let me be really clear about this. A yes brain, oh, well, let me say it this way. The brain is either in a receptive, open, curious learning state, mm -hmm. or it's in a reactive, shut down, chaotic, or rigid state. Mm -hmm. And so a yes brain is that receptive state, and the no brain is a reactive state. So, you know, one of the ways we can think about a no brain is a kid who, you know, obviously a no brain state would be where we would see that in a kid who was having a big meltdown, screaming and yelling, acting out, slamming doors, being physically aggressive, being verbally aggressive. But we could also see no brain states in kids who run anxious all the time or who are perfectionistic, who are unwilling to try new things, who are sort of just terrified of anything new. Um, so those would all be considered no brain states, whereas yes brain states would be kids who are willing to try something new, who can sit in discomfort and handle themselves well anyway. Um, so a yes brain state is one in which our brain is integrated. We can handle ourselves well. We can make good decisions. And as parents, the way we respond, or as educators as well, the way we respond to a child in a moment can activate a yes brain state or a no brain state. So I could say, um, if I say to my kid, no, stop it, I told you to knock it off. I'm probably gonna activate a reactive fight, flight, freeze, you know, threat response in my child, a no brain state. But I could also say, yes, I told you to leave me alone. So it's not about the word yes or no, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's really about how we communicate that send our children's nervous systems into more receptive, open, integrated states or into more reactive, shut down, fight, flight, free states. And one of my favorite words that I've learned as a professional is the word neuroception. And it comes from Stephen Porges's work on polyvagal theory. But he basically says that like we think about perception where we take in information and we sort of perceive what that means and we sift through that information, neuroception is an automatic embodied perception or understanding that doesn't involve any thought or pause. It's sort of an automatic decision that our whole nervous systems make about whether we're in, whether we're safe or whether there's a threat. Mm -hmm. So our neuroception goes danger, threat, or it goes safe. And so when we are in a yes brain state or in the green zone, our neuroception has told us we're safe. The red zone, which is a reactive you know, really explosive, more acting out reactive state or the blue zone, which is more of a collapsing, shut down uh, reactive state. Both of those are often where the neuroception goes into a threat mode. And mm -hmm. there might actually be a threat in the environment or the kid could have faulty neuroception. You could have a kid who, you know, has really slow processing speed, but who's also, you know, very bright. Um, and as a lot of information's coming at them, it's not that the environment is dangerous, but their neuroception goes into hyperarousal because they feel like they can't handle it. And so that can activate a threat response and send kids into a no brain state as well. That is a great description because, you know, as I, I you answered in a very general sense, I know you're going to give us some strategies, but what I'm hearing as a parent, you know, I was making a, a facetious remark at the beginning of the show about, you know, how do I intentionally integrate my child's brain in the moment? Right. Um, that's right. hard to do. But what you just said really resonated in the sense that we can 
work hard to think in a moment, how can I create a receptive state versus a reactive state in my child? Like I can imagine that as being a a sort of a mantra in the face of a meltdown or a pre-meltdown. This is huge. This really is huge, Dan. And I think, you know, it's funny. I said this to my kids for a long time before I got it myself. So I would tell, you know, I have these three boys and they would fight a lot and it drove me crazy. It's the most unpleasant part of parenting for me. Mm -hmm. And I would see that one of my sons particularly would say and do things to his brother that would be what I would call stirring the pot. He would, he would, he would intentionally do things that would upset his brother more. Mm -hmm. And I would say to him, you have so much say and control about what happens next. You can respond to your brother in ways that calm the situation down and make things easier for you. Or you can make things worse by saying something, you know, more upsetting. And so that's really, you know, this is what I told my boys over and over. And honestly, it was really took a long time until development unfolded that they really got that in a deeper way. But I think it took some time for me as a parent for my development to unfold to get that in a deeper way. And what helps me so much, and this leads us right into a strategy around this is that if I think about, okay, so my, my kids got this green zone and the green zones when the whole nervous system is like chill, it can handle stuff. We can be even a little anxious, a little upset, frustrated, angry, but we're still handling ourselves. Right. right. But then if my kid goes into a state of hyper arousal, their heart's beating fast, their eyes get wide, their respiration increases, they might even get hot, their muscles get tense. All of this is an automatic nervous system real, real, reality when they go into the red zone. So this is where your nervous system arousal just gets dialed way up, okay? So my kids in the red zone, let's say, acting out, being really disrespectful, throwing a fit, being aggressive, etc. One of the ways I can think about this is to help them get balance again is that my job is to be the haven, to be the soother, to be the one who, if I think about their reactivity like a dial, if their dial's turned way up, my job is to help turn down the dial to get them back into this green zone state. Now, if I'm screaming and yelling, if I'm throwing threats at them, if I'm throwing consequences at them in the moment, if I'm slamming doors myself, I'm basically turning the dial higher. Mm -hmm. I'm increasing their arousal. And here's the thing. They can, we can only learn when we have balance. We can only learn when we are in this receptive yes brain state. So if I really want to be an effective disciplinarian and hold my kids accountable for their behavior and teach them better ways to be so that I'm disciplining less and they become self-disciplined people who are wonderful humans in the world, then to be an effective disciplinarian, I got to get my kid in the green zone first Mm -hmm. because the whole purpose of it is for them to learn and for me to teach. So In the moment, I have to go, is my kid ready to learn and am I ready to teach? Are we both in the green zone? If the answer is no, then the first thing I've got to do is make sure I'm green. So I may need to go take a minute and calm myself down before I even begin to help my child calm down. But if I can stay calm, if I can stay green, and I sometimes even visualize like I'm breathing in like trees and meadows and like nature and imagining it so that I can just be full of this greenness then I can in the moment go, okay, my job is to soothe the heck out of my kid. Even if he's doing something bad, even if the behavior has been bad, because that's going to allow me to get him into this receptive state where he can learn effectively and I can effectively address his behavior and handle, you know, be a disciplinarian in the moment. 
So the first thing we do when our kids are reactive is know that it's contagious. Reactivity is contagious. <laughs> yes, and we is. have to be calm. Because our job is to help soothe our child's reactivity. And this is what the attachment system is all about. That in distress, they go to be to their caregiver to be connected and protected so that they know they're safe. So then we soothe, we calm, we breathe, we get them back into that state. And they sometimes need us to help them do that. And when we yeah. help them do that, it wires the brain in a way that allows them to do that for themselves. Well, and gosh, this is so aligned with uh, parent footprint, as you know, in so many ways, because I'm thinking yeah. we're trying to focus on our child to help create a balanced brain, um, a balanced yes brain. And to do so, we have to get balanced ourselves, and then in For sure. or, and then be a, almost a surrogate balance to them while they're becoming balanced themselves. Right. Almost like when they flip their lid and they can't access their prefrontal cortex, we're like the external, like you think about an yes. external hard drive, we're the yes. external prefrontal cortex, which means we have to keep ours online. Yes. And, you know, Dan, I'm thinking about this moment. My son uh, was sick and he was having a total meltdown at bedtime. And I had made him some tea with honey because he had a really sore throat. And as he climbed into the bed, he spilled it and it spilled all into like a power strip that had some of our devices plugged in. And so internally, I'm like, oh, Wrap. You know, I'm like, oh, like yeah. who knows what devices just got ruined and whatever. But he just goes red. He flips his lid. He's totally unbalanced. He's having a no brain with an exclamation point, right? Mm -hmm. So I take a breath and I say to him, it's just an accident, right? And he's sick. And my goal is to get him to sleep. Um, mm -hmm. But I say, oh, well, spills happen. We can make more tea, we can clean up messes. Let's just snuggle and read for a few minutes and then we'll, we'll figure it out in a moment. So that's the way I respond versus what my initial instinct before I took right. the breath was to be like, you know, I can't believe you spilled that, you know? And, and so basically I do have tremendous power to integrate my child's brain in the moment. I really do. It's hard. It's simple, but it's hard. And it really requires that we care for ourselves and we get the support that we need and have enough fun and sleep and all those things in our lives so that we can have a big, fat, juicy green zone ourselves so that we can be the haven for our children when they inevitably, <laughs> yes. you know, go outside of it. Nice, everyone. A big, fat, juicy green zone. That is what <laughs> we're going to get. We're going to shoot for this weekend. <laughs> I love yes. it. Okay. And really, so, the, fir yeah. the first strategy for, for us helping our kids with balance is actually sleep. I know I just mentioned that, but you cannot stay in balance if right. you're not getting enough sleep. And most of our kids are chronically sleep deprived. So that's one thing parents can do right away. And in the book, we Huge. show what kids need and all of that. But we really need to make sure we and our kids are getting enough sleep. For sure. And that brings us to the resilient yes brain. So tell us about the yes. resilient yes brain. So... Resilience is really about making that green zone fat and juicy. It really is. It's about how when we have adversity, it takes a lot of it to make us not be balanced. It's about the ability to bounce back from adversity, to tolerate adversity. And my co-author, Dan Siegel, has this beautiful expression called the window of tolerance. It's like how, mm -hmm. how wide our window is for how much we can tolerate. So resilience is about having a wide window of tolerance or a big you know, hearty green zone, but it's really also about how, when adversity hits and you know, you know, this Dan, there's a lot out there that's not just talking about 
you know, post-traumatic, it's basically, you know, we talk about PTSD or difficult things that happen to us when we have traumas or adversities, but there's a lot of research out there talking about post-traumatic growth. Hmm. And when you interview people and you look at the, at the research, about 70% of people who have been through some type of trauma or significant adversity can talk about ways that they grew or that their life shifted in, in important, meaningful ways. So resilience is also about moving not just through adversity and tolerating it and bouncing back, but bouncing forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is really where when difficult things happen, we can have conversations with our kids and model it ourselves that that was really hard and I learned something or that was really hard. And I had a lot of people around me that supported me. And that feels really good to know I have such strong connections and relationships. So part of that is just having reflective dialogue and really, and, and focusing on the good things that come after the adversity. Uh, that's really important because um, I like the idea of post-traumatic growth and, so many of us are worried about our kids and our kids do go through tough times and there's been this, um, you know, this helicopter response to keep our, yeah. you know, protect our kids, pull them out of there, uh, change something, talk to someone and uh, get granted there are times to do all of that. But I think yep. we have to keep our mind on how to um, increase resilience is there's no way to increase resilience without going through and learning from difficult circumstances. That's exactly right. And that's what I think um, we have to remind ourselves as parents. We have these beautiful, hardwired biological attachment um, impulses and instincts to protect our children. Mm -hmm. But if we let those get the best of us, especially if we wrestle with anxiety ourselves, we tend to kind of run in the more anxious, worry sort of mindset, then our our good intentions to protect our children actually end up doing them harm because you're exactly right that if we, in the book, we call it bubble wrapping our children. Right, right. If we bubble wrap them, we don't let them have practice being resilient. And the only way you become resilient is by practicing handling difficult things. And I think there are two main ways that we go wrong about this as parents. Typically one is to do exactly what you're talking about is overprotecting and not letting our kids you know, my kid's um, flying to, he's a, he's 15. He's flying to meet his grandmother in Texas today. And my husband, he's traveled quite a bit because he goes to sleepaway camp at this beautiful camp in Minnesota in the summers. And so he's been traveling and stuff, but my husband dropped him off the airport, talked him through. He felt like he was good to go in. Well, his flight got canceled. Mm. And so he's in the airport and, and we're working it out, you know, and all these things. But I'm like, this is, I have to, I have to hold my anxiety about that, knowing he can handle it. And I'm, we're in touch with each other. So it's, um, it's a little bit of cushion, but with enough cushion there that he's not just completely on his own, but that'll be good for him. He'll know he can handle, you know, travel changes and the circumstances not going their ways. The other right. way we go wrong, Dan, is that we are not able sometimes as parents to tolerate our child's negative emotions and emotional distress. Yes. So we rush in and fix too fast. So I'll just give another quick story. My son one of my sons was my little guy. Um, there were some, some of his older brothers had friends over and they were doing some fun things and having a sleepover. And um, because sleep is so important for balance, we tend to be very structured around sleep. And so um, I had let JP, I said, you know, it's Friday night and the older boys are over. So I'll let you stay up an extra, you know, 30 or 45 minutes or whatever to be with the boys. But then it's going to be time for bed. Well, you know how the story goes. It's 30 or 45 yep. minutes later. 
we go to bed and he's just as disappointed had we gone up 45 minutes earlier. We were going to deal with disappointment either way. But as he's lying in bed and he's crying and I'm lying next to him, you know, my, my instinct in the moment is to say, you know, I can't believe you're crying and complaining because I already gave you 45 minutes extra. And so next time you're not going to get more time, you know, totally. that's what I want to do. That, I, mean, yep. I just couldn't go into those immature places so easily. But because I felt centered in that moment and I was able to stay green and I was able to be intentional about allowing him to feel right. Mm -hmm. So I could just say to him, and this is so much easier than what we often end up doing and spending so much energy arguing and lecturing instead to say, you feel disappointed. I know they're having fun down there and you really want to be there with them. And it's really hard to feel left out, isn't it? And so I just go with him into the emotion he's feeling. I name it mm -hmm. and I sit there with him in it. And I say, I know it doesn't feel good to be disappointed. And I'm right here with you while you're disappointed. And then I give it a minute or two. And then I say, you know, I might say, do you want me to sing to you? Or do you want to listen to like a little meditation to help you fall asleep? Or, you know, then we can move into problem solving to help soothe him more to allow him to go to sleep. But one of the best ways we can help our kids be resilient is to allow them to feel and deal with difficult emotions and to just be present with them mm -hmm. while they walk through it. Wonderful. Yeah, to allow it and to be aware that, you know, yeah. we can have our own emotion, but we need to keep our own emotion in check so they can have their own. Yep. And then they know the next time they're really disappointed when they get their heart broken for the first time yeah. that they can handle it, that right. they can walk through it. So we've got two more important uh, parts of the Yes Brain to touch on before we close. Yeah. And I want these are very important parts. And of course, they are layered purposefully in your guys design. Yeah. So the insightful <laughs> brain is next. Tell us about the insightful Yes Brain. You know, insight is actually kind of a superpower, really the ability to see yourself. And Dan Siegel talks about the word mind sight, which right. is sort of a combination of insight and empathy. But here we've sort of broken them down. But the ability to see your own mind. And to know that you have this mind that allows you to not be victim to your circumstances or to your emotions, that you have this tremendous power to notice what you feel and are experiencing and then to shift it. So, you know, sometimes we can start doing this with our kids, um, you know, even when they're younger to say, you know, what are you noticing about how your body feels right now? You know, and it might even just be physiologically. One of the things that we discovered about one of our boys is that um, he's really prone to low bl blood sugar with significant mood shifts. And so mm -hmm. we would just, you know, we could say, hey, what are you noticing about your body's cues and about your mood right now? And do you think maybe having a snack might be a good idea? So sometimes it starts with just some basic things like that. I'm shocked that even, you know, my youngest is now 11, but even when he was eight or nine, when he was being really grumpy or just kind of disrespectful in his tone, if I could say, hey, I'm, I'm wondering if you can just sort of notice right now the way you're talking to me and talking to your brothers. And I'm wondering if you can just ask yourself, what is it you need right now? Because it seems like you're, you're, there's something you're needing. Um, so just sort of giving them some awareness and some insight about what's happening inside them so that they're not just, you know, a lot of people believe that the feelings that we have, the emotions we experience that we're victim to them, that they just sort of sweep in and take over and there's nothing we can do about them. That's completely antithetical to the science. Right, right. And um, so we really can just help our kids notice what, they're what they feel, give words to what they feel, and then 
you know, and to experience it and then to do some problem solving and, and think about ways that they can shift that. And we can model that for our kids as well. You know, and it sounds like, again, it, it sounds simple, but we know in the moment it's not simple. It's the difference from <laughs> from saying, what did you just say? You can't talk to us like that. You know, do you really think you're right. going to get you what you want when you speak to us in that way versus what you just said? I'm wondering if you can pay attention to how you're sounding right now. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like it, same intention. One is, again, back to the point of that you said earlier. One is we're trying to create a receptive yes brain instead of a reactive no brain in the moment. That's right. And so, you know, those two responses, examples you gave the first one when you, you know, you say well, you can't talk to me like that. That activates a no brain state. Mm-hmm. And the other activates a yes brain state that requires them to use their prefrontal cortex. And here's the bottom line of all of this, Dan, of all of your work and all of mine and the podcast and all of this is that we know that experiences change the brain. The, the kinds of experiences these kids are having by being parented by us are not just influencing their minds or their characters, but the actual architecture of the brain. And so if we repeatedly activate a no brain state in our kids versus repeatedly activating a yes brain state, right. that is changing how that brain gets wired for what's automatic. And what we give attention to activates neurons and those neurons fire and wire. So If I give a lot of attention to reactive, no brain types of communication by the way I'm interacting with my kid, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm, it's, it's like, it's like muscles, you know, those are the emotional muscles that get built are reactive emotional muscles or receptive, balanced, resilient, insightful, empathetic ones. Right. So this does require intention and we're going to mess up all the time. And you know what? That's beautiful because it, it gives us opportunities to reflect on our own stuff, but it also gives us opportunities to model for our kids how to make repairs. And so, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. phrase I use a lot of times is, hey, I've been thinking about how I handled that with you. And I really wish I had handled that differently. Mm-hmm. I think that I was in a really reactive state and I, the tone of voice I used was kind of mean and I was really intolerant and you were just trying to, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm really sorry about that. I, I wish I had handled that differently. And... I'll try better next time. You know, that's huge. Yeah, and it's so valuable. That's, that too. is huge. And then that moves us in. I mean, because that's showing empathy as well. <laughs> empathy towards exactly. another. Right. So so finally, tell us yeah. about the empathic yes brain. Well, you know, it's interesting. There was some recent literature that talked about um, is empathy overrated or is empathy dangerous? And people talked about empathy burnout and all of that stuff. And yep. in our fields of work, we know that, you know, empathy burnout is a real thing. But there are lots of types of empathy. And that was, we talked about sort of five facets in the book. But their empathy is, you know, I'll just, I won't, I don't need to go into the, all the specifics, but, you know, one type of empathy is seeing things from another person's perspective. Another type of empathy is feeling with someone. Another type is called empathic joy, which is where you really experience joy and meaning from helping someone else and uh, reducing someone else's suffering. That's called compassionate empathy. Um, you know, one of the things that is the most, well, I'll, I'll save that for the end of this little section on empathy, because I think it's a good, powerful punch. But I think, you know, allowing our kids to feel like we talked about in the resilience section and making them aware of what they feel like we talked about in the insight section, those are all things that lead to empathy. Because if they've never felt those emotions because you've protected them from them or shielded them from them, they're not going to know how other people feel when they when they do it. Now, empathy is such a learned skill. Now, some kids are born naturally really empathetic and others not so much. And I had, I had two that were born very naturally empathetic and one not so much. 
And knowing this, I just gave a lot of attention to how other people thought and felt. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it totally has paid off for this kid. Little things like little moments um, walking, you know, out of a store and noticing, say, oh, my goodness, look, that man is holding a lot of packages. Let's see if we can help him with the door. Or uh, being in a restaurant and the waitress is really not being very nice. And to say, instead of, you know, what's her problem? To say, <laughs> I wonder if she has something really difficult going on in her life. It seems like she's having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Or as we're reading with our children to say, what do you think is going to happen next? What do you think she's wondering about? And, you know, just asking questions at, about other people's thoughts and feelings. So those are all things just basically what we're giving attention to is firing and wiring that right. social engagement circuitry that's in that prefrontal cortex. But I'll say, Dan, that the most important thing that we can do to help our children have empathy yeah. is to model it in the way that we give them empathy when they're having the hardest time. Uh, and oftentimes that's in the moment when their behavior is the most atro atrocious. Yes. And we've given several examples of that. But, you know, when our kids are just little brats in the moment was what we think, you know, we're like, you're being such a brat or maybe mm -hmm. worse. We're saying cuss words in our head <laughs> yeah. or whatever, but to say, okay, my kid's nervous system is in a threat state right now. They're in fight, flight, freeze. They're reactive and they need me to give them and to say, you know, empathy softens our edges. And for me, when my kid's being really obnoxious in the moment to say, Hey, you seem like you're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, don't talk to me like that. Totally. To say, like, you seem like you're having a really hard time. What's going on? And that completely shifts a totally different neural network getting activated. And so if we can give them empathy when they are at their worst, when they're having the hardest time, that will be the most important thing we can do to build empathy in their own brains. Oh, that's yes. And I'm going to one quick story before we go to the parent footprint moment is you're reminding me of a client, yeah. um, mother, child, dyad, and this bright, intense kid was getting in trouble all the time at school. And the rides home yeah. were really not great. And what happened today? And what did you do? And I thought we were working on this stuff and da, 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 da. And one day she just looked him in the eye and said, I can tell you had a really tough day today. Let me know if you uh. want to talk about it. And she came in and she said Beautiful. that shifted their relationship. Like it, yeah. it, it, that she said it was like he she saw that he that he saw that she got him, and just yeah. had let her in instead of uh, reacted to oh, her. So just a great example of what that you just so said. Beautiful. Okay, you've done this one time before. This parent footprint moment. You're going to tell us of a time. When you became aware of yourself as a person, an individual, and as and or as a parent, and that awareness, that new awareness, had a positive impact on your child. There's one story that stands out so significantly, and it was with my firstborn, who's now 18 and about to graduate from college. <laughs> um, and I'm a doer, Dan, just like, you know, yeah. I'm, I like to do things and, um, and, and being is something I have to really work at. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a doer and it's my first baby and I'm a stay at home mom. And I'm, you know, I've signed him up for this, you know, enrichment little music class and he's 18 months old. And I'm like, you know, we've got to go and we've got to hurry and we've got to get to this enrichment class and I'm packing everything up and I'm hurrying him. 
And he is just engrossed in what he's doing. And I, you know, grab him and say, come on, we got to go. And so he's really upset. But as we walk outside, he sees a ladybug and he (laughs) wiggles out of my arms and he squats down. You know, that little squat where their their little rear end is almost touching the ground, but not quite. He squats down and he just stares at this ladybug. And I have this moment and I'm like, why am I rushing him to go do one more thing? to enrich him when there is something amazing happening and I can just be present to the moment and stop the doing and just work on being. And nice. that was nice. a lesson. I, I'm, I'm sad to say I did not fully learn in that moment. It's one <laughs> I've had to continue to learn. Um, but that was a huge thing for me um, to not be driven by plans and doing, Mm -hmm. but instead to really sort of just be present to what's happening. And of course we have things we need to do and schedules we need to abide by. But I think now looking back on that and thinking about this guy who I just have a few more months before he leaves for college and it feels like the clock is ticking. I am so invested in just being present, like every dinner conversation, every evening he's home, I'm just swimming in delight of being present to what's happening in that moment. And I, I wish I had gotten, you know, I wish I could have done that more as my boys have grown. Beautiful. So you're thinking ladybug, that's your mantra, right? Ladybug. Uh, Exactly. And you did have the awareness. Yes. Presence. You had, I just want to point out, you had that awareness back then. You had it in that moment to allow him that ladybug and being late to his enrichment music class. So that's right. Okay, Tina, (laughs) I wish we had more time. Um, Thank you again for being just so insightful and so helpful and your words, which um, I talk about all the time um, in my office and so many of our listeners have loved the the last podcast. They just, they really embrace these words and this research. And um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing with us today and tell everyone where they can continue to follow your work because we know there's going to be a next. They're all is. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we have one that we're working on now that's due in August, all about attachment, and we're nice. excited about that as well. Um, my website is tinabryson.com, and they can find me there. Um, and also on that site, find the link to my interdisciplinary uh, clinical practice here in Pasadena, California as well. Which I can uh, validate for all of you. It's uh, worth going near and far to uh, work with uh, an amazing group of professionals. Thank you, Dan. Okay, everyone, thank you for tuning in to the show today, The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Visit us at www.parentfootprint.com. Check out our Parent Footprint Awareness Training, which is designed to help you become more aware and parent with purpose and intention. Think about the person you want your child to become Try to be the person you want your child to be. Model it for them. Show them. Be with them. As Tina says, be present. And I'll ask you the same guiding question I always leave you with. What footprint do you want to leave?